Welcome to the Fundamental Health Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Paul Saladino. This podcast is the result of my relentless search to understand and correct the roots of chronic disease and illness. In this podcast, I will share with you everything I have learned about how to live the most healthy and radical life possible. Thanks for joining me on this journey. What's up, you guys? I hope you are all having an amazing, amazing week. I have a very special episode for you this week. My guest this week was Michaela Peterson. You will all know her well, I imagine. She is the daughter of Jordan Peterson, who is the very well-known author, and she clearly received many of his amazing intelligence genes. This was an incredible podcast. Um, We even talked about what song she would do a steak dance to. She is a 27-year-old woman. She is the mother to a beautiful little girl who you will see all over her Instagram who has an incredible set of hair. She runs the blog, Don't Eat That. And her story is amazing. I mean, she tells a lot of it in this podcast. She was diagnosed with juvenile idiopathic arthritis at age seven. She had severe depression beginning at the age of 10 and idiopathic hypersomnia, which is being very tired and having to sleep a lot at the age of 21. She had multiple joint replacements at the age of 17 and basically took matters into her own hands. She did her own research, found people doing uh, elimination diets, paleolithic diets, autoimmune paleo diets, carnivore diets in an effort to solve her autoimmune problems. She started with paleo and low carb, eventually ended up on a very simple diet of beef, salt, and water, which miraculously, perhaps not miraculously, as we're finding out with the carnivore diet, resulted in essentially complete remission of her condition. She's now off all of her medication. She's in complete remission and she's doing incredible work on her YouTube channel, on her blog to raise awareness about this idea that a meat-based diet, that a carnivore diet can be quite healing. And so this message is totally compatible with things that I believe. And we talked a lot about that stuff. She's eating some organ meats. We talk about that. We talk a little about fasting And I think that she is a fantastic voice in the community. The places that you can find her are listed in the show notes, but I encourage you to check out her stuff. And I think you will really, really enjoy this conversation. It was a fantastic one. And please let me know what you think of it. If you enjoy this podcast, please leave me a review on iTunes. I'm doing so good. It's a five-star podcast. It gets in the top 10 every week in fitness and nutrition. And that is such a... A warming thing for my heart to know that I'm doing something good and that you guys enjoy it. Check out my website, carnivoremd.com. Subscribe to my newsletter. I send it out every couple of weeks or every week right now with all kinds of good stuff. So sponsors this week include White Oak Pastures. And you guys, I am so happy, proud, joyous to be able to support these folks. They are a fifth generation farm in Bluffton, Georgia. They have had this farm in their family for 150 years. It's incredible. It's just incredible what they're doing there. They practice regenerative agriculture. They are one of the Alan Savory hubs. If you're not familiar with Alan Savory, look at his uh, YouTube video. He is all about regenerative agriculture and returning nutrients to the land as we are farming it. As White Oak Pastures talks about with their slogan, which is radically traditional farming, and with their practices, they are trying to leave the land better 
than it was before the animals were grazing on it, which is really the magic of Alan Savory's message, the magic of White Oak Pasture's message, and the magic of real ruminant agriculture, which has been happening on this planet, not in a cultivated sense, but in an evolutionary sense for millions and millions of years. We know that when ruminants graze on land, when animals use land properly, the land becomes richer and is able to sequester more carbon than it was before the animals were there, which is the whole idea of this premise. And if you look at the research that's been done on white oak pastures, it's been certified as a carbon negative space, meaning that more carbon is sequestered in the soil at white oak pastures than is produced. They are greenhouse gas negative. They are greenhouse gas negative. I will repeat that. It is such an incredible thing. They do grass-fed beef. They have pastured pork. The Iberian pork fat and the Iberian pork is out of this world. They do chickens. They are shipping turkeys now for Thanksgiving. Supporting white oak pastures is essentially supporting the movement to educate our general populace that animals can be good for the land. So I am, again, so proud. It gives me chills to be talking about this, to be supporting them. You can use the code CARNIVOREMD on their website until the first week of October to get 10% off your order and they'll know I send you, and you will receive amazing, amazing products at an incredible cost. So check out White Oak Pastures, whiteoakpastures.com, and send me your steak dance, you guys. They're giving away a $100 gift certificate this month for the best steak dance. Tag me on Instagram with the hashtag steak dance, and tag White Oak Pastures, at White Oak Pastures on Instagram. You could win 100 bucks of free grass-fed Steak, fat, chicken eggs, turkeys. It'll be it'll be fantastic. And you get to show everybody how much you love to dance because you're happy and healthy. This podcast is also sponsored by my good friends at Ancestral Supplements. You know them well. They are sourcing grass-fed beef organs and bone marrow from New Zealand and packaging them conveniently in a gel and capsules. As you know, Organs, I believe, are a central part of our diet, whether we're eating ketogenic, carnivore, or paleo, or whatever. They provide unique nutrients and an incredibly dense source of those. Their beef organs are particularly popular. This is a combination of kidney, heart, liver, spleen, and pancreas. That is a, an incredible gang of nutritious organs that I believe will increase the vitality of any who ingest them, whether in the freeze-dried capsule or in fresh form. So check out Ancestral Supplements and check out their beef organ complex. I've used it in the past. Many people I know have benefited from it and felt they had increased energy. It's www.ancestralsupplements.com. You can use my code, which is SaladinoMD, for 10% off on their Shopify site. So with all of that in mind and without further ado... Please support White Oak Pastures, Ancestral Supplements, and enjoy this podcast with the inimitable, the amazing, hopefully the soon-to-be steak-dancing Michaela Peterson. All right, Michaela Peterson, welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to have you on. Thanks for having me. It's nice to finally meet you. I know. It's great to finally electronically meet you, and I hope that soon in person we will cross paths and do a steak dance together. So... First things first, do you have a steak dance? If you were to do a steak dance, which song would you choose and 
can we see your steak dance on Instagram soon? Oh my God. Okay. I'll, I'll be doing a steak dance soon. Um, probably Kanye West's ghost town. I love it. I love it. It's going to set the internet afire. It's going to break the internet in, in no way that has ever been seen. So I can't wait for that. Many people will know your story, but I would love to hear you retell it for those who aren't familiar or just to kind of introduce and set the stage for all the stuff we're going to talk about during this podcast today. So let's just dig into how you found the carnivore diet, what was happening before the carnivore diet and your life over the last maybe 15 to 16 years, what it sounds like when you were suffering from many things. Okay. Okay. Well, I'm actually going to start. So I started having autoimmune problems uh, when I was two. Um, so that's 25 years. That's a long time. Yeah. Um, so I started walking, like when I first started to learn how to walk, um, I was walking with my feet out and limping a bit. So it was like, as soon as I started to walk, uh, I had symptoms and I was diagnosed with juvenile rheumatoid arthritis when I was seven. I had, um, 37 joints that they knew were affected. So it was everywhere except for my spine. It was in my jaw. It was in my, like all my small joints, my hips, my knees. Uh, like I said, everywhere except for my spine. Um, although it hit my spine eventually, but not at that point. So that was when I was seven. Um, I started suffering from a mood disorder. I was diagnosed with uh, severe depression and put on antidepressants when I was 12. 12. 12. Yeah, wow. but I was like, you know, it, I was having you know, suicidal ideation in grade five. Mm -hmm. um, so the antidepressants actually, you know, considering we didn't know diet had anything to do with it, the antidepressants actually helped a lot. You know, if you're not going to treat the root cause, they were, they stopped me from like being in a pit of doom all the time. So that was grade five. And then I started getting really tired when I was in grade eight. So all my kind of autoimmune symptoms just got worse and worse and worse. And in grade nine, I guess it was, I started sleeping more and more and more. And I had a really difficult time waking up in the morning. Um, when I was, eventually I was diagnosed with idiopathic hypersomnia. So that, I finally got that diagnosis when I was 21. Um, when I was 17, I had my hip and ankle replaced from the arthritis, which was re-diagnosed as idiopathic juvenile arthritis uh, instead of rheumatoid, which doesn't, doesn't really make much of a difference. Um, I, didn't have it, I didn't have any markers in my blood for arthritis, so they re-diagnosed it. Um, I started getting itchy in grade nine. So I had this like whole body itch and I had, uh, <laughs> like if I scratched too much, I used to get hives. What else? I had a whole bunch of symptoms. Um, those were the main one. Like the, the worst one for me was the psychological stuff. Uh, the chronic fatigue was really bad too. Obviously getting hip and ankle replacement wasn't ideal. And that was on a whole bunch of medication. So when I was 17, for instance, when I had my hip and ankle replaced, I had been taking uh, immune suppressants since grade uh, since I was eight. So I was the first kid in Canada to be put on this medication called Enbrel, which is, um, well, an immune suppressant. It's TNF-alpha antibody, yeah. right? Yep. Yeah, yeah, inhibitor. Mm -hmm. um, so that reduced my, like, active inflammation in the joints, but didn't actually stop my joints from disintegrating. 
So yeah, I was also on methotrexate. Um, inhibits folate. So methotrexate is dihydrofolate reductase inhibitor. So it's going to inhibit the body's ability to, to use folate to make any sort of new DNA. So it sort of stops cellular replication. Yeah. Not ideal. Not uh, ideal. <laughs> it also didn't, it didn't seem to help. Like, uh, the end, when I first went on the Enbrel, um, I went from like not walking really in grade two, grade three, when was, how old was I when I went on Enbrel? Uh, I was in grade four when I went on Unbro. Oh no. So that was cortisone. I had cortisone injections first. So I had cortisone injections for the arthritis in a whole bunch of my joints. And that helped a lot. Like I went from not walking to running around in the summertime. Um, but obviously that's not good for you. And, and that just leads to, you know, more joint problems. I had my left ankle, which is one of the joints that, uh, that got replaced. I had that injected with cortisone maybe five times before it was replaced. Um, and like, who knows if that contributed to it breaking down, but it certainly didn't help. Um, okay. Let's see what other problems did I have when I was 20, when I was about 21, I started getting skin problems. So that was kind of like the first step that led me to diet. I'd never considered diet before that. Um, but I had all these mounting problems. I was on so much medication. Um, I was taking antidepressants, immune suppressants, taking Adderall to stay awake. Um, I was on birth control at that point. Um, I was taking Tylenol 3 to sleep uh, because my shoulders hurt laying on my side. Um, I was taking antihistamines uh, daily because I was just allergic to like the outdoors, just allergic to everything. Allergic to life. I was allergic to life. Yeah. Particularly plants like trees and well, dust, literally anything, animals, so not just plants, but yeah, I, um, I started getting rashes. Like, so the itch I, I got in grade eight just lasted. And then I started getting rashes that were like accompanying the itch. And it took me like two years to link it to gluten. And I did a whole bunch of genetic testing. I had my whole family do 23andMe because I thought maybe I had some weird genetic disorder that people hadn't figured out. And it was like, Maybe I can isolate it if I get everybody in my family to do 23andMe, but I couldn't find anything. I did find out I had the celiac gene, which was enough for me to, like, without being formally tested, I figured if I have a genetic predisposition, I'll just cut it out. And I did a bunch of research and found out, oh, there's actually a lot of evidence that gluten is really bad for the gut. And then I was really angry at the medical community for not having me tested for celiac disease when I was a kid because they test like I know at sick kids in Toronto, they test people with type kids with type one diabetes. They just test them for celiac disease right away because those two disorders couple so frequently. But for some reason they didn't test the kids in the like arthritis department. So that made me mad. Um, yeah. So the first step was that was in 20, I cut out gluten like May 2015. That was like the first step. And that was the big psychological leap from thinking food had absolutely nothing to do with it to being like, oh, maybe all my problems are caused by gluten. That was the hope at the beginning was like, maybe this is just undiagnosed celiac disease. Yeah. Yeah. So that was May. Um, and then, yeah, and I can't underestimate how bad like these rashes I was getting were 
Like I was, they started on my like shoulders and they were on my bum and then they started hitting my face. And I was like, I can't, I can handle being like miserably depressed. I can handle the arthritis and like the pain and the itching and the chronic fatigue, but I can't handle like a rash on my face on top of all that was just like, that is it. Um, I went back to school. I went into biomedical science. I thought I was going to have to go into immunology to try and figure out what was wrong with me because I was going to doctors and they were basically telling me, well, they didn't know what was going on. Um, and they told me like the rash was caused by me scratching. I was like, no, it's really not. I'm just itchy. Uh, you gotta anyway. love how, how silly physicians are sometimes myself included. Like, well, it's hard. Silly. Like, what the heck? I guess if you go to medical school and you're taught all this for that long, and it's like difficult, I guess, you, you know, you do your undergrad and then you're one of like, you have to be incredibly smart. You have to be pretty smart to get into medical school and like determined to get through all the steps that lead you to medical school. So then you get in and then you're taught things that at least nutrition wise aren't even like the origin of disease just aren't right for four years. And then you come across somebody who's extremely neurotic and ill like me, like I was because I was desperate when I went there. I was like, Oh my God, this rash. Like I was a, like kind of a crazy person going to see doctors. And so then they just brush it off and like, well, you're just crazy. <laughs> That's exactly what yeah. happens. And I'll tell you what, in the United States, there is no discussion in, in medical school of the origins of disease. There is only a discussion of how we treat disease. And I've talked about that before. I won't belabor the point now. And yes, that exact same thing that you're describing happens when patients come in with clusters of symptoms that we don't understand as physicians, we label them as psychiatrically ill. Which is such bull poop, you know? Like I try to yeah. keep this podcast clean, so I won't say it, but I want to. Like that's just bull crap. And yeah. anyway, that's that's my polemic. I, I've I've been there anyway. Your story is so interesting. Okay, so keep going. Okay, so September. Okay, so I cut out gluten and it didn't make a huge difference, right? I wasn't really like, I was doing what most people do, I think, when they first go gluten free, which is I was just replacing everything I like to eat with gluten free versions. So I was eating, you know, gluten free pizza, gluten free noodles, you know, gluten free bread. Um, so I didn't see a huge improvement, but I did feel a bit. My memory isn't very good from about 21 to 23 or 4 before I cut out a whole bunch more. Um, but I can start to remember that summer a little bit more, summer 2015. So I think cutting out gluten did help a little bit. And then in September, I kind of thought, well, I'll just give an elimination diet a try. Like my mom dragged me to a naturopath and I'd been to naturopaths, you know, for my entire life. I'd gone through all the, you know, I'd done every wacky, you know, I tried everything I could think of and that my mom could think of to try and get my autoimmune condition under control. And I'd gone to a lot of like pretty quacky people who probably weren't as quacky as I thought they were at the time. Um, so I went to another naturopath and they gave me this list of foods to eat. And at this point I was on a lot of Adderall. So I was kind of amphetamined up like to the gills all the time. And I remember like looking at this piece of paper and being like, this doesn't make any sense. Like why would I cut out oranges and not lemons? Um, you know, certain nuts were 
okay, but other nuts weren't. And I had absolutely no idea where they got this list of food from. And I was like, no, I'm not doing that. I'll, I'll just do it myself. Um, and so I kind of researched what the most allergenic foods were and then cut out ev everything I thought I could. I didn't realize at the time, that was 2015, I didn't realize you could only eat meat. Right. So I went down to, I like I figured no one's allergic to meat. Um, so I kept meat, so chicken, like all types of meat. And I kept most root vegetables, but not nightshades. Um, I kept so potatoes would be the root, the, the root vegetable that's a nightshade. And we can talk about what nightshades are for people to clarify. That would be like tomatoes, eggplants, peppers, peppers, hot peppers, goji berries are actually a nightshade potatoes. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. So you cut out nightshades. I cut out nightshades. So I kept things like, um, I have a list on my website actually, but I kept like sweet potatoes, parsnips, carrots, turnips, you know, so the, those were some of the root vegetables I kept. Um, and then I kept a lot of like leafy greens and meat. So I went down to that. Um, and I figured that was like as limited as you could get and still be healthy. And I had a huge, well, no. So I did that for a week. Um, and then I started experiencing cravings, which I didn't realize were a thing that you get when you cut things out. Right. I didn't even know. I didn't even know that that was something that happened. So about a week afterwards, I was like, "Well, clearly this isn't working," and I didn't know how fast it should work either. I was like, "Clearly it's not working." I'm going to make some gluten-free almond nut. Like, what did I make? I made muffins, banana muffins with almond um, flour. With almond flour and honey, like they were sugar-free, gluten-free. They were as healthy as like super paleo. They were as healthy as you can get if you're going to make muffins. That are gluten-free. That are gluten-free. And they were, right. I mean, technically grain-free. Right. Um, technically, they had honey, but no, like, sugar, you know, no cane sugar anyway. Anyway, so I made those, and I had a whole bunch of them. I had, like, four that night. And then I woke up in the morning, my wrist was sore, and my right wrist has been, like, other than the joints that were replaced, my right wrist has been the most aggravated like, you know, into my twenties and my wrist was sore and I was like, Oh, that's interesting. Maybe diet does have something to do with it. And then I had like three or four more muffins because it didn't hurt enough to stop me from eating muffins. And I was just like, well, you know, I'll, I'll cut them out later. Um, and two days later I, I couldn't walk. So that was a, that was a huge flare up. Like Oh, also, I should mention, at the, by this point, I had stopped taking all of my uh, immune suppressants. So when I went gluten-free, I stopped taking the Enbrel and the Methotrexate because I didn't think they were working. They obviously hadn't been working that effectively or I wouldn't have needed a hip and, uh, hip and ankle replacement. So I stopped. And so I was all, always kind of aggravated by that, <laughs> being like, well, I, I was sick all the time because if you're on uh, immune suppressants, you just catch everything. So I had something like bronchitis just constantly. So I was always irritated about taking the medications. So I was pretty happy to just stop. And I was like, I want to monitor my flare ups when I start cutting things out. So I'll stop taking them and just see what happens. And nothing really happened when I stopped. So anyway, two days after this whole muffin experiment, I couldn't walk. I was in a grocery store and I was like walking down the grocery store. And I was like, Oh, my knee is hurting. And my knee 
hadn't really hurt since I was a kid. I was like, oh, my knee is hurting. And I was walking down the grocery store aisle and then I was like, my knee's locked up. And I spent the next two days in bed. And that was like, because that never happened, I was like, okay, that had to be the muffins because this hasn't happened since I was a kid. Um, and so then that really took me down the food train. It was convincing enough that I was like, okay, it's got to be food. And then in the next three weeks, so I went back to that original elimination diet I'd made. And then in the next three weeks, I lost two pant sizes um, and five pounds. On the elimination diet. Yeah. So two pant sizes, five pounds. My stomach went flat when it had never been flat before because I'd been bloated, which I had, didn't even know. Um, my skin rash cleared up and it never cleared up. Uh, and my arthritis symptoms dramatically improved. And that all happened within three weeks of sticking to this, um, you know, pr- low carb, really restrictive diet, which turns out kind of lines up with the autoimmune paleo diet, except it's way, it was way more restrictive, but I didn't even know, like at that point, I didn't know the autoimmune paleo diet or paleo or keto or any of these diets, but what were you eating at that time? Were you still eating, you were eating meat and some leafy greens where you do it and you were doing some tubers? Yeah. Okay. So, and that was pretty much it. That was it. And I was really strict. Like I was in university, but I cooked at home. I brought food with me to school. Um, I didn't eat out. Olive oil was in there too. Okay. Uh, coconut oil was in there as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, salt and pepper, some spices, turmeric, Mm -hmm. uh, None of the like pepper spices, sorry, black pepper. Yes. But none of the, you know, um, capsicum. Yeah. Right. None of those. So I was pretty strict. Uh, and about a month after that, I started to reintroduce, Mm -hmm. uh, and I managed to reintroduce fairly successfully, um, apples, pears, peaches. I tried to reintroduce white rice for a while because I thought nobody's allergic to rice, especially white rice. Um, and I tried that like off and on for about three months until I was like, okay, I guess I can't do rice. Cause it was making, it was giving me symptoms, especially like digestive, like bloating and just symptoms. And at that point I was really scared about cutting things out because I thought I was missing key nutrients. Um, because I was so restrictive compared to like anybody I'd heard of. Um, yeah, but anyway, so three months after that diet, after a couple of like successes reintroducing some fruit and major non-successes, I guess you could say, trying to reintroduce, I tried to reintroduce almonds that went really badly um, with like GI symptoms and arthritis and my itching skin rash. But three months after I kind of stuck to the original diet with a little bit of added fruit, um, my depression started to lift, which I hadn't expected at all. I'd thought maybe autoimmune symptoms are food related, maybe the skin, but not the mental stuff. Um, because it, it like runs in my family. My grandpa has it, my great grandpa, my dad, me. So it didn't seem like something that would be diet related. Um, so I stopped taking my antidepressants pretty quickly. And I was on a lot of antidepressants. I was taking 40 milligrams of medication called Cipralex. And that was not covering it. Like I was still crazy, but it was like kind of, 
kind of covering it. Um, and that was a lot. That was more than doctors were comfortable prescribing. But uh, I couldn't take any, I couldn't take less without really being crazy. So I stopped taking that in November 2015. Uh, and I, like, not being depressed was unbelievable. The, the, the difference between being depressed and not being depressed, I'd never experienced anything that good. Um, and then about three weeks after I stopped taking, so at that point I stopped taking all my medications. So I, I, like as soon as I stopped taking the antidepressants, I was like, oh, I don't need anything anymore. Um, I stopped taking the Adderall. I stopped taking birth control. I stopped taking the Tylenol 3 because my shoulders weren't hurting me when I was sleeping. And then in September, I tried to reintroduce so. Uh, sorry, December, I tried to reintroduce soy because I've been having terrible, terrible soy cravings for like months. Um, and I tried to reintroduce soy, and I had the worst like autoimmune and psychological response to reintroducing soy that I've ever experienced. Um, that was December 2015. Yeah. I actually, I talked about it on Rogan, but I actually hallucinated. Um, and so then I was like unmedicated and, you know, I hallucinated once and then I just stayed, you know, I smoked weed for the next like three weeks and just stayed stoned. was like, I'm not letting my brain get to that point again. But I was like, great, I've stopped taking all my medications and like fooled around with my body and now I'm actually crazy. <laughs> of course, if you say you ate soy and hallucinated on Rogan, you're going to get thousands of dudes taking tons of soy in an effort to hallucinate. <laughs> They'll be like, this is the new psychedelic. Anyway, who knows how many people did that? doesn't sound like it was a pleasant hallucination though. It wasn't. It was the scariest like... I heard you talking about it on Rogan. You said that you were in the car with your brother and his face... Distorted. Yeah, it was very. You described it as like a very scary thing after reintroducing soy. Yeah, it was scary. There was like, there's two moments. Wow, two moments like prior this year, I had some family drama, which was scary too. But before that, there were like two major moments in my life that I was scared, and one of them was when I didn't know if I could get my ankle replaced, and I was in a lot of pain, and I didn't know how long I could last in that much pain. So that was when I was 17. And then the other moment was this soy reintroduction where my brother drove me home because I said, I, like, I can't drive. Something's wrong. I can't drive. Can you just drive me back to my apartment? And he drove me home and I got out of the car, like went, went to my door and turned around to wave at him. And he turned and looked at me and then his face turned into a demon face for like long enough that I looked at it and then he turned back to drive and then it was him again. So it wasn't just like a flash. It was like a solid second and a half. And I remember standing at the door being like, okay. It's not like I actually thought he was a demon. It was like, oh, I just hallucinated a demon head. Um, yeah. So that was, <laughs> that was concerning. Um, especially because I thought, oh, well, maybe I was just naive to think that I had gotten rid of the depression with food and like, how could I be so naively hopeful? And now I'm just unmedicated and crazy. And then the reaction to the soy introduction lasted for the next like three and a half weeks. So I was thinking, well, maybe it's just a couple of day down days or a week. And it was like three and a half weeks. And I didn't know if it was ever going to go away. So that so was you introduced one food 
and there was this long reaction. This is such an interesting thing to highlight. So let's, can we pause here for a moment? There are so many interesting things that you've touched on that yeah, I want to yeah. highlight for people. So you had these autoimmune diseases from an early age, which were probably due to the things you were eating, but Western medicine doesn't think about this as an option. And the medications you were on, the methotrexate, the Enbrel, like I said, the Enbrel is a TNF-alpha, I think it's a TNF-alpha monoclonal antibody or an, it's an antibody which will inhibit the, uh, the TNF-alpha, which is a cytokine the body uses yeah. to signal inflammation. Methotrexate yeah. affects the pathway of folate. You mentioned celiac genes. I just want to clarify these for people if they're curious. There, is a, there are two genes. There's a set of genes called HLA haplotypes, specifically it's HLA DQ and DQ2 and DQ8, which are part of the multiple histocompatibility complex. I believe it's the type 2 MHC complex in our cells. Anyway, this is just the part of the cellular signaling that we use on the surface of our cells to tell other cells whether we are self or not self. And so in people who have this MHC histocompatibility complex, this HLA DQ2, DQ8, the rate of celiac disease is much higher. Yeah. Interestingly, there are lots of people who appear to have gluten sensitivity, which is non-celiac, which who may not have DQ2, DQ8. But generally speaking, in the world of Western medicine, perhaps, but certainly in the world of functional medicine, if we see a patient and they have DQ2, DQ8, we're like, okay, you can't eat gluten. Yeah. But, so that's, that's what people, if people want to look on their 23andMe, it's that HLA haplotype. The other thing that's so striking for me as a clinician hearing your story is the timeline of how things develop sequentially. I think a lot of times people are trying to make sense of their health journey and they will see they're good, 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 they're healthy, 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 and then they're 18 years old and something pops up. And it could be that it's just been brewing and the immune system's been sort of changing and your symptoms were sequential. You had changing symptoms over time, but the, the signals to the immune system were probably going on that whole time. So the immune system can do funny things and out of the blue, something can happen. It doesn't necessarily mean it was something that you did that week or that day. It could have been something you've been doing for years and then suddenly the immune system has this strange reaction to it. So that's one piece. The other piece that's so interesting for me and that I want to highlight for people is that as you started to improve your diet, I want the listener to hear the time frame with which things got better. And at this point, we haven't finished your story and we will sort of, you know, round it out here in a moment, but it's unique to mention that you didn't have to go full carnivore to get some improvement no. in symptoms, which is great for people to know, but that I can't wait until the day that Western medicine realizes that dietary interventions, specifically elimination diets like what you did, are more powerful than multi-billion dollar medications. Yeah. You know, cutting out nuts and seeds. In the book I'm writing, I'm creating just a basic sort of template, a, uh, a sort of a, uh, like a, a scale of plant toxicity for people. And in my opinion, and it sounds like you're experiencing this, the most toxic foods, the most triggering foods for people are often the seeds, which actually are nuts, seeds, grains, and legumes, and then the nightshade vegetables. Those seem like those were two huge triggers for you. And at the other end of the spectrum, for a lot of people, some leafy greens, maybe some tubers, some non-sweet fruits, 
might be less triggering, but there seems to be a spectrum of oh, yeah. plant foods which are more and less triggering for people. And soy, as people will know, is technically considered a legume, but all of these are actually seeds. They're plant sort of they're plant reproductive, they're plant babies. They're they're the plants sort of reproductive parts as they're putting into the next generation. And then the last thing I'll say, and then I'll let you tell the rest of your story, is that you had it was so interesting, and I want people to, to hear this again, that some of your symptoms resolved after three weeks and some, or some of the reactions to foods lasted as long as three weeks. When I heard your dad on Joe Rogan, which was incidentally the thing that got me interested in carnivore, so I owe you both a great debt of gratitude. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Um, he said something that was so insightful. He said, food reactions can come up days to weeks after you eat a food. And yeah. I think it's just his personal experience. He was not claiming, you know, to be a nutritionist in the traditional sense of the word. But he said food reactions can come up in his experience days to weeks after you eat the food and can last for days to weeks. And so this is what I think is so cool about a carnivore diet is that, or, or a strict elimination diet, is that the simpler you make your diet, the more variables you take out and the yeah. easier it is to get to the root of which foods are actually triggering us. Because people take out one food at a time, the equation yeah, can be too complicated. They throw up their hands and they say, this can't be food or I can never figure this out. And then once you have taken a food out, I will emphasize to the listener that it may take three weeks to three months for that symptom to improve. You said that it was months before your depression improved. Well, I actually think that was because I kept reintroducing things that were triggering it. Ah, okay, cool. Yeah. So I, I actually like, I actually improved really quickly as soon as, like really quickly as soon as everything that I needed out uh, was out. Okay. And like one thing I want, want to emphasize is when I went low carb initially, I got rid of all my symptoms. So I was never like, there were periods of times, periods of time when I was on this really restrictive, but not like carnivore. Like I had some vegetables, I had some fruit, but I had to be very specific with what I was eating. And there were months where I was symptom free until I had a baby mm-hmm. and then I couldn't get that back. Interesting. So something, something changed. Now that didn't happen for dad. Um, dad was never symptom free because I, I made a list of a very restrictive list of foods that worked for me, uh, like zero problems worked for me, but dad could never get to where I was at Mm -hmm. on that list of foods. And I had no idea why. Um, and then I got pregnant on, and I was still eating that really restrictive like list of foods and all my autoimmune symptoms, not like before, but they came back enough that I, you know, not enough for me to start taking medication or anything, but enough that I was depressed and unhappy. And I couldn't tell if it was pregnancy or I could tell I was reacting to the foods I was eating, but I didn't understand why. And I slowly dropped the higher sugar foods. Like it turned, I started reacting to sweet potatoes first and uh, fruit. So I was eating sweet potatoes and fruit. And I realized that if I ate more of those one day, then I'd feel worse the next day. So I dropped all those and I went to meat and greens for like months and months and I was still going up and down and dad was kind of going up and down. He was on meat and greens at that point too, because he was kind of falling along for whatever I was suggesting <laughs> or forcing <laughs> on him. Um, and then at one point it was like, so I had, I thought maybe these were just pregnancy symptoms. So this was like, this was 20, 
17, 2017 at this point. You were pregnant uh, at this time or postpartum? Uh, so I had my daughter August, 2017 uh-huh. and I thought maybe my symptoms will get better. Cause maybe these were pregnancy symptoms. Right. You know what you read on the internet? Like, Oh no, that's just normal pregnancy, which is not true. I, I don't think. Um, so I had her and my symptoms didn't really improve. I was like, Oh my God. And so in like at the very beginning of December, I was like, okay, I think I'm reacting to salad, like lettuce I was eating. And at this point I'd even cut out cucumbers. So I was eating lettuce and apple cider vinegar and olive oil and salt and pepper. Like it was, there was nothing, there was nothing in my salad. Um, but I was like, I'm breastfeeding. I'm going to be missing key nutrients. Um, and then I was so tired of being depressed again because once you're not depressed and the depression comes back, it's almost worse than just having it in the first place. Cause you're like, Oh no, I escaped and it's back and you know, panicky and everything. So I cut out the salad and then were you keto in your pregnancy? Were you in like, you were pretty low carb during your pregnancy. I was keto. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. We can talk about that stuff because I think a lot of women wonder about this can I do ketogenic diet during pregnancy? Oh yeah. I, I was ketogenic diet during breastfeeding. So I want to highlight for women listeners. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll get into that after, but, um, no, definitely. I was eating meat and greens. I had the keto tester. I was in ketosis pretty much the whole time, especially after I stopped eating like apples and sweet potatoes. Um, and your daughter is healthy and beautiful and has the most amazing hair that I've ever seen. I know. I know she's it's precocious like, and running around. So you yes. can have a totally healthy baby in ketosis and pregnancy is. Oh yeah, for yeah. sure. And, and okay. Okay. So December, 2017, I cut out salad and I went to just eating meat. And at that point I was eating all meat and fish. So like meat, fish, chicken, everything. And after like two days, my itching went away. So the itching had come back during the pregnancy and after the pregnancy uh, even though it had disappeared low carb, it, it was now back. It went away in like two days. And my digestion was just a disaster. Like I had, which we, which now we know from talking to all, like all these other people that when you switch from eating plants to going to carnivore, like having diarrhea for the first couple of weeks is fairly normal. At least for like, it looks like it's like 60% of the people, like a big section of people get that. Some large percentage of people, some don't, but, um, Anyway, I didn't know that. So I was like, okay, my itching is gone. Like my joints feel a little bit better, but this is obviously really bad for my body. But then one of my friends who's in the Marines and watches Joe Rogan sent me Sean Baker's video and was like, cause I was talking to him about it and was like, I'm allergic to everything. All I'm eating is meat. And now my body's like rejecting it and I'm doomed. I guess I'm just doomed to have an autoimmune disorder. And he sent me Sean Baker's video and Sean Baker was like, oh yeah, I've been doing this for like a year and whatever. And I was like, oh good, I'm not going to die. And so I, I like, I stuck with that. First I tried to reintroduce a salad actually, and my digestion immediately improved and the itching came back and the arthritis came back. And I was like, are you kidding me? I guess I'll just deal with having diarrhea and not having an autoimmune disorder. Right. That's uh, a balance. I just yeah. want to mention for people here, I've seen the same thing. I had probably three to four weeks of diarrhea when I started yeah. carnivore diet. And a lot of people will message me and say, if I eat plants, it immediately goes away. Yeah. And my symptoms almost invariably 
come back. You know, yeah. they'll say, I get more depressed or my stomach gets bloated or yeah. my rashes come back, but my diarrhea stops. So yes. for the listener, I want to highlight that the loose stool, the diarrhea is not an issue in my opinion, probably Norma Kayla's at the beginning of carnivore. This is a changeover yeah. in terms of your gut flora and yeah. the fact that as you're eating more meat or entirely meat without plant foods, you're probably getting a bigger release of bile. And that bile is going to have a lot of bile salts and the small intestine needs time to learn how to reabsorb those more avidly. Yeah. One, if the bile salts pass into the colon, you, they will cause catharsis and you'll get diarrhea. I think that's the main thing going on for people. And the reason that when they reintroduce plant foods, the diarrhea goes away immediately because when you reintroduce the plant foods, it's not as much of a bile stimulant, the cholecystokinin, the hormones in our stomachs that influence the gallbladder to squeeze are probably not as robust when you have carbohydrates or other fibers in your diet. It doesn't mean that the plants are curing you or that the diarrhea is a bad thing. It's just that it takes time for your body to learn how to reabsorb those bile salts. If people are familiar with the supplement ox bile, they'll yeah. know that if they take too much ox bile, it will cause the same thing because those bile salts are cathartics. If they get to the colon, they will cause the colon to just go crazy and you will get loose stool, you'll get diarrhea. So, But the diarrhea at the beginning of carnivore is not an issue. And if people are eating plants and it stops, they shouldn't think like, oh, I'm cured. I want to just give people that advice because a lot, I think more than a few potential people who could benefit from the diet have stopped because of this. Yeah. Well, it's scared me enough to try and reintroduce plants, but I had such an immediate response to um, the plants that I was like, I'll just choose the, the like digestive problems over it. But, um, but yeah, that seems to be pretty normal with people. I thought it was a, I think part of it, at least for me was even though I was eating very, very high meat diet, like I, I ate meat every meal, um, when I, from 2015 till I went carnivore, uh, in, you know, late 2017, every meal. So I was eating like three steaks. Possibly, I was actually possibly eating more meat when I was low carb than I'm eating now because I'm not as hungry now. Um, anyway, where was I going with that? I think part of the problem for me was I was having a hard time digesting fats, which is strange because like I said, I was eating a lot of meat back then, but then when I switched to just eating meat, I felt like I was having a harder time digesting the fats at the beginning. And then I'm sure I had my, oh, I, I know I had a microbiome change cause I did stool testing and I know a whole bunch of the more well, carb eating bacteria died off. So it is a big change on the body at the beginning, but that doesn't mean it's a bad change. Exactly. Just, yeah. Just and that's exactly it. what we've seen is that the carbohydrate loving bacteria will go away and bile acid tolerant organisms and protein and fat metabolizing organisms will arise in the gut. Now, mainstream Western medicine loves to hate on the carnivore diet for that, saying that those are not good microbes. And I think that is, again, more baloney because we just yeah. don't know. And clearly, a lot of carnivores or people who are on pseudo-carnivorous diets are going to get that change in the gut flora. And many inflammatory bowel conditions get better. So for people to say that the switch in the microbiome that happens with a carnivore diet is a bad thing, in my opinion, it is premature and uh, is not based in sound science. Oh, yeah, for sure. It certainly wasn't a bad thing. Well, partly. It wasn't a bad thing for me. When I first went low carb, I had a whole bunch of like, I, well, I had a candida problem. I like, I know I had a yeast problem um, prior to changing my diet um, because I was eating so much sugar. 
And that resolved when I was eating meat and greens. So before I cut out the greens, that resolved. I had a whole bunch of pathogenic bacteria die off at the same time as the carb eating bacteria died off. And I think I had like a diversity problem. I'm sure I had a diversity problem because I was on antibiotics like yearly from the age of one and a half or, you know, multiple times a year. Um, And so I do think I had a microbiome issue that wasn't fully resolved going carnivore because, well, carnivore can't, (laughs) it got all my autoimmune symptoms under control got rid of my mood disorder, got rid of everything, but it can't like do absolutely everything, unfortunately. Um, and I've seen that in, in clients and other people that if they have an overgrowth of a pathogenic yeah. bacteria like C. diff or blastocystis, which is not a bacteria, but it's a parasite, or they have Helicobacter pylori, or they have yeah. some of the bad amoebas, Entamoeba histolytica, you know, changing to carnivore does not always, at least in the short term, get rid of those. Sometimes it seems that people need targeted antibiotic therapy or FMT, fecal microbiota trans, uh, transplant, to get rid of those things. It, carniv- a carnivore diet, elimination diet, similar to what you do, seem to be very powerful for the immune system. And we also may need to do a little bit of gardening, quote unquote, yeah. in, in the gut, in addition to that, to really get people fully well if they have persistent stuff in the, in the gut living there. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. And then one thing I should mention too is I've seen people on the carnivore diet um, manage to reintroduce carbs. And I wouldn't say, you know, they go back to eating grains, but I've seen some people um, reintroduce things like, you know, some fruits, um, you know, non-nightshade tubers, leafy greens, and manage to get more of kind of the diet I was doing to begin with. Um, restrictive paleo keto diet. Carnivore-ish. 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 Yeah, like lots of people are on that. And I've seen people like, a lot of people have been concerned, oh, if I go to all beef or something, I'll never be able to eat plants again. But it seems like there's another transition. Like you reintroduce some plants, you need to build up the microbiome that helps digest those. But when you do that, depending on who you are, like people with autoimmune disease, problems might just be screwed, but (laughs) maybe, but, um, I've seen people like get back their tolerance a bit. So it depends on the person, I think. Yeah. It's very individual. I think there are some people who can tolerate more plants than others. And some people for whom a carnivore diet is really going to be the best option in terms of inflammation, triggering the immune system. And as you mentioned earlier, one of the things that is so intriguing to me about the carnivore diet is the possibility of eating a carnivore diet long-term. As much as I dig into the nutritional literature, I cannot find a deficiency that will arise if you are eating a well-constructed carnivore diet. And we can talk about how you're eating and different ways of doing a carnivore diet. And this is one of the reasons that I think eating nose to tail is beneficial for people. But a lot of people have the same concerns that you had when you were eating meat and greens. Oh, I'm missing something. And I think that we can talk about this more later, but if we add in some organ meats, there is a full amount of nutrition there for humans. There's nothing missing in terms of micronutrients, minerals, vitamins. And I think we're getting all of these nutrients in highly bioavailable forms without any of the toxins found in plants. I think some people can introduce, reintroduce plants if they want for entertainment, for social reasons, maybe they like the taste of plants, but I'm not convinced that those plants are doing anything necessarily beneficial for them. You know, they're still survival foods. There's there's no benefit to them, but if they want them in entertainment, they can. Yeah. That's at least my perspective. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what my, like, 
I don't know what my position is exactly. Um, I have a really close friend who went to all beef for like six months and he thinks he feels better with some carbs, but I, it's hard for me to believe. (laughs) So I'm not entirely sure. I'm really careful. I've been wrong so many times in this health journey that I'm pretty careful to not be too sure about anything. But I know that like, one of the things I really like about carnivore compared to low carb, and I really like vegetables. Like I was a huge salad fan. I really like vegetables, but I don't miss the cravings. Like even when I was low carb, it'd be like, oh, I need a salad. This is a salad day. And with carnivore, it's just like, it's just, it's good, obviously. Like having a really good steak tastes good, but it's kind of more like fuel than fun right? Um, which I kind of like, it gives me more of a sense of like control and less anxiety about eating. Um, so I like it. I don't think I'm going to switch it up. I hear people talk about that. I hear people talk about that. They'll say that when they go from ketogenic diet to a carnivore diet, their cravings are much less, Yeah, much easier to control food in their whatever, toward whatever goal they're searching. So that's unique. So let's let's kind of like bring people up to the present day and talk about how your carnivore diet experiment or your carnivore diet exploration has has gone, what you're eating now and how you're feeling now. Okay. So I I went pretty quick to all beef um, when I first switched over because I was having, you know, the GI symptoms from switching over and I wanted to get better as quickly as possible. And once you cut out plants, it's like, uh, who cares if I don't eat chicken? Um, so I went straight to all beef and about six weeks later, so it actually took longer after my pregnancy to get rid of all my symptoms than it did initially when I went really restrictive, low carb. So that was scary, but it took about six weeks and my, um, my mood stabilized. So I was mostly looking at it for mood. Like I was getting, I was arthritic for sure. Um, which was really frustrating with a little baby. Um, the arthritis actually improved within a week. So that improved really quickly. The itching, all the physical symptoms improved really quickly, but I, I literally just dropped salad. Right. Um, but then it took six weeks for my mood to stabilize and I wasn't positive. I was just like flat. I was like, okay, well I'm not depressed, but I'm not happy. I'm just not depressed. And I was like, okay, I can live like this. I can stand this. It took five months to start getting positive emotion back again. Um, so that's quite a while, but sometime around May. Yeah. So December until May. So I guess that's almost, I guess that's five months, six months. Um, then I started getting like little, I don't know what, just little like spikes of positive emotion. It was like, Oh, okay. So now things are improving. Uh, finally it took five months. That's important to note. Sometimes the immune system takes a while to come around. Yeah. And I would say for females who've had kids, I don't know what happened when I had a baby. I think I had a microbiome change. Honestly, that's what I think happened to me, but it definitely made it harder to recover than prior to having a baby. So you need to give your body time. But, um, yeah, in May, 2018, I started getting like spikes of positive emotion. And then, and this was me being strict. Like I wasn't eating dairy. I wasn't eating eggs. Like I had cut out as I had cut out every possible thing that could be causing my body to react, except for beef. I wasn't eating out. 
So I didn't eat at restaurants. Literally all I ate was beef. I wasn't cooking with butter. I wasn't eating pepper. I wasn't drinking coffee. Like people ask all these questions. I was eating beef. Meat and salt and water. Yeah. Beef and salt and water. I hadn't added in. I'm eating lamb now and I can have bison. I know I can have all ruminant animals, right? It was just beef and salt and water. And it took that long uh, to start getting the spikes of positive emotion back finally. Um, And then, oh, and I should add, I wasn't eating organ meats. Um, Not at that time. Not at that time. I didn't start eating organ meats until I think it was September. So it was like almost, I guess that's like 10, eight months or nine months, something like that on all beef diet. Uh, And then I started craving liver. So I always hated liver, like hated liver with a fiery passion. And then I tried liver and was like, oh my God, it's sweet. And it had always been like repulsively, I want to say bitter, but maybe bitter or something nasty. And I had a bite and was like, oh my God, it's sweet. Cause I guess I could taste the sugar in it. Cause there's like a tiny bit, you know, a little bit of carbs, right? There's a little bit of, there's a little bit of glycogen in the liver. Yeah. Glycogen, yeah. And I could taste it. I was like, oh my man, this is sweet. And then I had like a pound or more of liver a week for like four months. Um, and then recently I haven't been craving it again. So I haven't had any in a while because I started eating it and was like, Oh, it doesn't taste as good. And I'm just following my body. Sure. And I figure if I'm eating something and I don't want to eat it, I'm just not going to eat it. Fair. I, I don't question anything more than that anymore. So my goals right now are to keep my fat as high as possible because I, if I eat lean cuts, like I went to Munich and they trim every piece of fat off of their meat. That's like humanly possible. And I had, I was eating there and I ate like lean meat for three days and I was angry, like not depressed, angry, but like kind of like hungry, desperate, hungry, you were hungry. You wanted a fat animal. Yeah. And I was like, I was like hanging out with one of my friends, just like, like angry, like an animal angry. And so I got, I got like soup bones and then added a whole bunch of fat from the soup bones and was just feeling so much better. So um, my diet is basically high fat, all beef. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll have liver periodically if I crave it, mm-hmm. but if I don't crave it, I don't add it in. Seems to me the best I feel is if I add as much fat as I can tolerate, which is quite a bit. And, um, I've been eating more and more and more the longer I've been on the diet. It took 10 months for me to enjoy fat. Like I used to cut it all off because I'd eat it and like be greasy and kind of make me gag. And I wasn't going to force myself to eat something that my body was like, no. But then, you know, 10 months into the diet, I had fat one day and it was tasted like water. I was like, whoa, the steak is really good. But it turns out something had just switched in my body and I could, I guess I must've just been able to break down fat better. Um, So yeah, high fat, all beef, lamb too sometimes. Um, where do, you get, where do you get your fat from? I know you're doing tallow. I see you doing tallow and jerky, fatty steaks. Have you tried suet or trimmings, like pure fat? Yeah, yeah. Cool. Um, I, there are Mennonites uh, at a farmer's market near me. Um, but before that, I just asked the butcher. Great. Yeah, even perfect. Whole, even Whole Foods will do it sometimes, depending on the Whole Foods. Fat yeah. is magical. Fat is magical. Have you heard? Yeah. So I did this interview with Miki Bendor a while ago. And he's a paleoanthropologist. Do you know Miki? I don't think so. He's spoken at like Ancestral Health Symposium. He's a great guy. He's Israeli. So he has um, 
sort of a, a unique perspective and he's finished his PhD uh, on, or he's submitted his PhD thesis. He was previously an economist. Anyway, he told me that in Andean Indians, the word they use as a greeting is Wiracocha. It's like W-I-R-A-Q-O-C-H-A. There's a couple of pronunciations of it. It translates to a sea of fat. <laughs> the way that they greet each other is a sea of fat. And it's like a blessing. And it's actually the name of a deity in Mayan okay. culture. So I, it's so interesting for me from an anthropological perspective, anthropological perspective, that our ancestors have always treasured fat. And I hope that people on carnivore diets or even ketogenic diets or mixed diets will not shun animal fat. That's, my, that's become my recent sort of crusade is to help people understand that animal fat is so valuable nutritiously for us. And I think that we see that. People crave it. And you're eating as much as you can. Oh, God, yeah. And I mean, that's why, that's why we bred cows like Wagyu cows. Yeah, because it's delicious. Like it. Yeah. Yeah, that's why people eat ribeye. Uh-huh. That's why people like ribs, right? Because they're fatty, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, yeah. So mine's like, I try and get as much as that, of that as I can just because it tastes the best. I've also found, the longer I've been on this, which is something I've discovered more recently. And how long have I been doing this? So it's almost been two years. Not quite. No, I guess more like a year and a half. And there uh, are plenty of pictures of you on Instagram that clearly show that you have scurvy. So yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Right. Right. Oh yeah. 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 No, that's, that's so, I was definitely concerned about that at the beginning and I, I just, I'm so not concerned about that anymore. Right. Um, but yeah, I can't remember where I was going with that. So two years, almost two years, you've been on the diet. One of the, and, and I know you've done blood work. I want to talk about that for people. Let's highlight some of your blood work. When I listened to you on Joe Rogan, he brought up some counterpoints from Kevin Bass, who is a Twitter guy. I, I know Kevin Bass. Yeah. You know, do you know he went him? after me on Twitter already. He did. Yeah. Yeah. So Kevin Bass is, I think he's doing his PhD. He may be in an MD PhD program. I believe, I could be wrong. I believe he has not completed his MD or his PhD yet, but he loves to be very vocal on Twitter. And some of his criticism of you and your dad, who let's just, I think most people will know who your dad is, but your dad is Jordan Peterson, who I believe was the best-selling author in the world in 2018. Yeah. Though that's not always totally publicized because many of his ideas are so controversial. And I don't think the mainstream media wants to admit that your dad is so uh, prolific and so how's helping so many people, but your dad has written the book 12 rules for life. So your dad is Jordan Peterson and we can talk about Jordan's experiences too, but he posted something on his Twitter saying Jordan and Michaela Peterson's, the benefits of their diet is due to caloric restriction. And I, I just, and, and he also had a number of criticisms of the diet on Joe Rogan saying you're going to get nutritional deficiencies, blah, blah, blah. So when I heard him saying that, or when I heard Joe reading that, I was just like, I just wanted to jump through the computer and be like, ah, and shake Joe. I mean, I, I love Joe, but I wanted to shake him and be like, these are crazy. We don't see nutritional deficiencies. You don't see nutritional deficiencies on this diet. And I love that people are criticizing the diet or bringing up potential problems. But I think that at this point, like I did a whole podcast on answering carnivore critiques. I think that many of the things that people, whether it's Rhonda Patrick or Gundry or Kevin Bass, I've been worried about with a carnivore diet have for the most part been answered. People are not getting inflammatory bowel disease. They're, they're fixing inflammatory bowel disease. We're not seeing scurvy. We're not seeing vitamin E deficiency. I've posted publicly about my high normal vitamin E levels. We're not seeing deficiency in the B vitamins. I think that the liver of the organism of animals and kidney are important to include occasionally to get 
all the B vitamins, but we don't see any of these problems. Everybody's saying you're going to get all these nutritional deficiencies and we don't see it, especially when people are eating organ meats. So I just want to keep putting that out there and answering these critiques so that people who want to try it will know that it's pretty damn safe, which is crazy in the realm of nutritional science within medicine because people cannot yeah. wrap their head around this. I know, but like people are going to have, they're going to give up eventually. They're, I'm, they're starting, I think they're starting to give up now because it's, you know, they're like, well, she's only been on it for eight months. That's not long enough for nutritional deficiencies to show up. But, you know, eventually it's like, okay. Well, from my, yeah. Eventually she'll, she'll get scurvy. Well, no, she won't. And eventually I'll get nutritional deficiencies, except we don't seem to. And maybe in five or 10 years, people will say, oh, wow, I guess that's true. But over that time, hopefully a lot of people will come to it and be helped by it. But so it doesn't seem, I'll, I'll just reiterate that point. So that people are very clear about Kevin Bass's leveled criticism. The benefits of a carnivore diet do not appear to be due to caloric restriction, though caloric restriction can be beneficial it's not the caloric restriction. Many people on that Twitter thread say, said, hey, I lost 10 pounds on keto and didn't get the benefits I have on carnivore. Yeah. My, my, my hypothesis, and I think yours as well, is that the benefits of a carnivore diet are mostly due to the immune system. And yeah. these plant compounds are triggering the immune system in unique ways. And for some people, a lot of plants are going to trigger our immune system. And I hope that the mainstream, or at least you know, more and more scientists and physicians begin to appreciate this. This is a unique intervention beyond keto, beyond fasting. I suppose it's similar to fasting in some ways because that's eating nothing, but it's a unique immunologic intervention for people. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And when I first went on it, I wasn't, I kind of, I kind of, kind of automatically intermittent, started intermittent fasting when I went on carnivore because I kind of went to two meals a day after a number of months. So at the beginning I was, I was eating a lot too. I was breastfeeding. So I was eating like two and a half pounds of meat a day. And now I'm eating like one and a quarter pounds basically. Um, especially if I keep the fat high. Um, so how much, so one and a quarter pounds of meat and then how much fat? That's kind of including it. Okay. So like mostly I eat fatty ribeye. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll have jerky and tallow. Sometimes I add tallow to the ribeye if it's not as fatty and then depending on the day and what I'm feeling sometimes I'll chop up just like a bit of fat and air fry it so it's crispy and add that so I kind of like go based on how my body's feel. feeling yeah, cool uh, but more recently I've started fasting more and that's actually made me feel better but the initial benefits of the carnivore diet were definitely from removing things that were triggering my immune system did you, did you lose weight? Did the yes. weight, I guess the weight you said that you lost weight originally, which may have been water weight and bloating. Has your, have you maintained your weight on the carnivore diet? I guess I'm answering the, the critiques of the diet saying, Oh, it's only due to caloric restriction. If indeed you were continuing to, to calorically restrict your, you would have continued losing weight. So did your weight eventually plateau perhaps is the better question. Yeah, this is really interesting. So when I was first went low carb, um, I was 123 pounds and that was like, when I looked in the mirror, I thought, okay, I'm like, a, I'm virgin on a little too thin for me. Um, when I first went carnivore, I lost 10 pounds in a week. And that was like pregnancy weight that I hadn't been able to lose eating meat and greens. Mm -hmm. And I was really confused because I was like, I am eating as clean a diet as you can possibly eat. And I still have this extra weight. I don't know if it was water weight or what, 
when I lost 10 pounds in the first week, just eliminating greens, just eliminating my like lettuce basically. Um, and then I've stayed stable, um, since then. So my weight only goes up based on how much meat I eat in the day. And if I fast, like I started fasting and doing more extended fasts. And even then I went to, after my last extended fast, I dropped. So I went from 128. So I've never gotten to 123. I'm actually more muscular than I was on low carb, which I've heard people say, but it's definitely true. So I'm five pounds heavier on carnivore than I was on low carb. And I did manage to get to 125 after my last extended fast, but that was like verging again, verging on like a little too thin for me. So intermittent fasting is what I'm doing now, uh, which I like, but no, the autoimmune benefits anyway, were definitely from removing the plants, not from calorie restriction. Right. So tell me about the fasting. What's your goal with the fasting? Because you're, I mean, you, you post pictures on Instagram, you know, you're clearly healthy weight, you know, clearly healthy. I don't think you're fasting to lose weight. Are you doing it to address the GI stuff? Are you doing it for others? What are you doing? What are you hoping for with the fasting? Well, at first it was just curiosity because it was like, oh, you can only eat meat. Like how often do I actually have to eat? When am I actually hungry? So for I, when I first started, I was trying to figure out when I was actually hungry. Cause like if I have jerky, jerky is just terrible for me. Like if that's in the freezer, I'll just snack on it and I'll over snack on it. Uh-huh. Um, just like, you know, before I started dieting, I would like eat chips and just eat an entire bag of chips. I was never like a couple of chips person. So even with jerky, I will eat so much jerky. So I think what happened was one day I just ate too much food and I was like, Oh my God, I can't eat anymore. What happens if I don't eat? I like heard that you could not eat for a while. Um, so I started trying to, you know, like a 24 hour fast. I tried eating one meal a day. I was doing one meal a day for like a couple of months. I was like, Oh, I only need to eat once a day. That's weird. So it started with that. And then I was like, well, maybe I could skip a meal and see what happens. Um, and then I started realizing like I did, so that was just curiosity kind of. And then I did a 36 hour fast and I got this huge mood. It wasn't huge. It was just like after you exercise kind of mood boost at around 34 hours. And I was like, wow, okay, this is cool. This is what people are talking about when they're talking about like mind, like clarity of mind when they fast. Um, yeah. So it was mostly for that out of curiosity. And then I started incorporating electrolytes in because I cut out, I didn't talk about this. I cut out salt for four months because oh, interesting. everyone was telling me I needed salt. I was like, how do you know? Like everyone tells you you need things and people are so sure about everything. So I was like, well, do I need salt? You know, I'm surviving off of meat. What if you can't get any salt? Do you just die? So, so I cut out salt for four months and nothing really happened. I didn't get muscle cramps or anything, Um, but meat really didn't taste very good. (laughs) Uh, I had like, it just tasted like absolutely nothing for about six weeks. And then slowly I started liking it again. But it didn't make me feel better. Uh, so I re- yeah, nothing, nothing happened. But my, I had blood tests at that point. I was testing like magnesium, sodium, things like that. Nothing changed. Hmm. So, so I added salt back in. And anyway, what I have realized recently is it really helps with fasting. The electrolytes. Oh my god! Yeah, 
like a huge difference. So I've like dramatically increased sodium, potassium, and magnesium during my fasts. My hunger, like if I have any downside of fasting, if I get like brain fog or if I get hungry or if I get thirsty or if I get tired, like any downside of fasting and I'll have some electrolytes and I'll be right back to normal. Um, so the benefits, yeah, energy, a lot of, a lot of extra energy. I know it like boosts up your noradrenaline. So that's kind of fun. The fasting uh, when you're fasting. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, but since I've been fasting periodically, if I overeat, this is just, this has just happened recently. If I overeat, I don't feel as good. I get kind of like hot and like meat sweats. Yeah. Which I'd never experienced until I started fasting more. Um, and now if I eat too much, I'm like kind of hot, which isn't that dramatic compared to having an autoimmune disorder, but it's definitely different than it was at the beginning. I think this has been documented. There is a thermic effect of protein. And if people eat a lot of protein, they can get this thermic effect. So maybe that's yeah. what's going on. Yeah, I think so. And I've tested my blood sugar. And if I eat too much too, my blood sugar will go up a little bit. And normally it's pretty good. Like normally I'm at about 80. Mm -hmm. Um, and my ketones are at like between like two and five. So I'm, I'm like pretty high ketosis, pretty low glucose. And if I eat too much, my ketones will go down to like 0.2 and uh, my glucose will go up to a hundred. And then I just don't feel very good. So I tried to like, I don't know why I'm just, I'm so healthy now that I'm just screwing with my body for fun, which I why shouldn't not? No, you can. It's self-experimentation. There's nothing wrong with that. It's, and it's better than, well, yeah, I, but that's, that's the point of health I'm at now. Because before it was like, no, I need to get to a stable point. And now right. I'm like, well, what happens if I do this? Um, so I've been overeating a little bit because I wanted to do an extended fast and I don't have enough, like, these are like carnivore problems. I don't have enough body fat to feel comfortable doing an extended fast. So I was like, well, maybe I can gain some weight if I overeat. So I've been overeating for like the last week and today I was just like, I can't do this anymore. So Were you just, able to gain any weight? Because yeah. on a carnivore diet, I have found, my friends have found, people in the community have found that it's very hard to gain weight even overeating. I think it really depends on the person. Right. Um, no, I don't think so. Like I think if I stopped overeating for a couple of days, um, I'd go back. I'm at like 130. So, so you're like, able to gain a little bit of weight? I don't think so, though. I think it's just like Muscle. food. Muscle. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I literally just think it's food. So, uh, no, I haven't. But I have, like, some people have reached out to me who've been like, I've, I've, I've been unable to, to lose weight. What's going on? Uh, and they're either eating dairy, which I think yes. is a terrible idea, or there have been a couple of people and they're like, I was like, oh, how much are you eating? Because it doesn't matter at a certain point. They're like, oh, I'm eating five pounds a day. I was like, oh, wow. Okay, maybe there was one woman who was eating five pounds a day. I don't even know how that's physically possible, but I was like, ah, oh, it's just no, she had no hunger cues from eating like a high carb diet for so long. So she didn't know when she was full. So that was sad. And I was like, man, you got to go down, down to, she was like five, three. I was like, you got to go down to like a pound and a half like max. And then she started losing weight. But this is a very interesting point that I want to highlight for people. I think that for some people who have been insulin resistant in the past, 
the satiety signaling pathways can be broken. And this involves leptin resistance. And what appears to be beneficial for this is extended fasting. I think that yes. people, people on carnivore diets, if they are, if they go to a, a lot of people, if they go keto to carnivore or paleo or standard American to carnivore, they will lose weight. And for people who have a lot of weight to lose, like we're talking 50 to 100 to 200 pounds, there sometimes appears to be a plateau. And I think that when people hit the plateau, it's not that they need to increase protein and decrease fat, which would, no. which would be the advice of like Ted Naiman or other people yeah. in the community saying, you need to eat less fat. And basically, you're going to starve yourself with rabbit starvation to lose weight. I think what they need to do is fast. Yeah. And the fasting period should be at least 72 hours, obviously medically supervised. I can't give medical advice on the podcast, but I think the, the fast should be five to seven days or more, and that will help potentially reset leptin. So I think that what we're seeing here is leptin resistance and broken satiety signaling. And for people who need to lose a lot of weight, they're going to change the diet and then fast and then eat again. And I think then the signals should be in place yeah. and they'll be able to eat and lose weight again. But I think that if the weight loss stalls, it's time to fast, not time to just go rabbit starvation, high protein, low fat. Yeah, no, I, com I completely agree. I completely agree. And doing like, even going to one meal a day can help people. Yeah, yeah. But that idea of leptin resistance and fasting, resetting leptin is quite remarkable. And I want to dig into that more in the future with people. But so let's just highlight for people, you have had some blood work. I know you talked about it with Rob Wolf. I think we'll just run it down it real quickly for people so they can be assured, you know, you at this point, you were doing carnivore for quite a long amount of time, at least probably a year when you had this blood work, right? Yeah. And as I'm looking at it, I mean, I love blood work. So, you know, your glucose was within the normal range, fasting glucose, your kidney function was totally within the normal range. Your serum magnesium was within the normal range. Your uric acid was within the normal range. Basically, kidney, liver, uric acid, basic serum electrolytes were all within the normal range, as was your, uh, your what was your zinc? Your zinc has been low in the past, right? My zinc was... Yeah, I don't know what my zinc was on there. I don't have the blood work up, but my vitamin D and my zinc have been low since I was like six. Well, we know why your vitamin D is low. You live in Canada. <laughs> I you know, to, it's, hard, it's hard to live here. You have to get outside. Yeah. And as an aside, I will probably do a whole podcast on this in the future. I do not think, it's my personal opinion, sort of from a medical perspective, that taking vitamin D is not the same as getting sunlight and that the benefits oh, wow. of sunlight, the benefits of sunlight are unique and cannot be mimicked by vitamin D. I think we need some amount of vitamin D, but I think that the improvements that we see in outcomes in studies with high, people with higher vitamin D levels are a proxy for sun exposure rather than pushing high vitamin D. Because when we do interventional studies with people and give them a whole bunch of vitamin D, we don't see the same effects. So no. I took, I took a 10,000 IU of vitamin D for months uh, before, before my diet changes to try and, and it didn't do anything. I could never get my vitamin D up. Oh, I'll, interesting. Get tested, I'll get it tested soon because I've been getting a lot of sun. And one of the things that changed dramatically on carnivore and it didn't change low carb uh, was I can tan now. I used to be like green, pale all <laughs> the time. And now I get out for like 10 minutes and I'm dark. And it stays for months. So I, I could never do that before. I've heard the same thing, that, that people on carnivore diets, they're not as likely to burn. And they sometimes... Yeah. Can, yeah. It's, it's yeah. And I mean like dark. This is a white shirt. Like that is tan for me. And I live in Canada. Yeah. 
there's there's some sun this time of year, but not the rest of the year. No, no, it's pretty sad in the wintertime. So the rest of your blood work showed that, you know, your your lipid panel looked what would be considered quote unquote normal, even within mainstream Western medical spheres. So we don't really need to dwell on that. I've done a bunch of podcasts about LDL and why we probably don't need to worry about LDL in the setting of insulin sensitivity. And it'll be really interesting to see your uh, blood work in the future. And maybe we can share those results in a future podcast. But ALT, AST, we're 16. Uh, You know, basically your entire blood panel, which included a comprehensive metabolic panel, a CBC, which is a a complete blood count, lipids, and um, uh, kidney function was all normal. So for people who believe that a high protein diet or even a moderate protein diet, like what you're doing is going to harm the kidneys, there's just no evidence for this. And then I've done a lot of work on myself and other clients to show that there's no nutritional deficiencies that develop. And maybe on the next set of blood work, we can go even deeper into that. The, the yeah. other thing that I think will be very valuable for the listener, especially the women in the audience, is to talk a little bit about your menstrual cycle. You mentioned you were on birth control in the past. You're not on birth control now. I know there are some women who have had menstrual cycle changes and some women who find that, that going carnivore improves their menstrual cycle. So what have you noticed with fertility, your menstrual cycle in this carnivore transition? Okay. So it's a, it's a bit hard to tell because, uh, I had a baby August, 2017 and then I didn't get my period until July, 2018. I was breast like exclusively breastfeeding. So, which is normal. It's kind of a normal phenomenon. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so July, 2018, I've seen improvements. Like overall I've seen improvements. Uh, it's much shorter. So when I was on the standard American diet, it was like eight days, pretty heavy crampy, not ridiculous, but like uncomfortable, but eight days was still annoying. Uh, I was also taking birth control though. So it's hard to tell. And I was taking that season one where you don't get your period for three months, mostly because I had an eight day period. And I was like, well, I don't want to deal with that. Right. Um, but improvements I've seen. So I have about a 30 day cycle and it lasts four or five days. And it's like a quarter of the amount of blood that I used to have. So it's much lighter. Um, no cramping and it's been, you know, stable. And then, so my mom, my mom got sick Well, she was sick for a long time before we found out, but, um, she was diagnosed with a really aggressive cancer in May. And then there were like, I've never been that stressed in my entire life. It was like brain cancer, bad prognosis wise. Um, it turns out like, hopefully there hasn't been a recurrence since the surgery, but she had surgery and she suffered a really rare, like one in 20,000 surgical complication that they couldn't fix in Canada because the Canadian healthcare system for rare disorders is like complete shit. Honestly, I'm not proud of, I'm not impressed with Canada, uh, Canadian healthcare system. It's like, great. It's free. doesn't fix anything. Right. Um, anyway. (laughs) <laughs> uh, I've never been this stressed out in my entire life. And, um, my period stopped from, from when we found out about mom until we found out that there was a surgeon in the States that could fix it. And then my period returned. So I went, I was like freaking out about it. I thought maybe it was because I was doing, ext- I was like, it's either stress. Cause I, I was so stressed. Like I couldn't think and like unbelievably stressed. I was like, it's that, or maybe it's my extended fast. Like, 
because my period was totally normal for like a year and a bit. And anyway, it turns out it was stress because now it's back. So other than me probably being more, I'm either more susceptible to stress or I've never been that stressed before, which I think is more likely. But uh, overall, yeah, improvements. Definitely with a lack of cramps. That's nice. And a shorter period is good. So I, I think this is important to highlight for people, again, that a carnivore diet doesn't seem to result in amenorrhea for women across the board, that, that some women find improvements. And if women are finding changes in their cycle as they're going to a carnivore diet, it probably requires a little more granular investigation of what's going on. Are they getting enough calories? Are they getting enough fat? Are they over-exercising? Yeah. How's the stress in their life? But I find it encouraging and it's all an experiment and we need to be open to the possibility that carnivore diet is not good for humans, but it doesn't seem to be the case that women don't always become amenorrheic. They don't always have problems with these things, thyroid or hormonal cycles on a carnivore's diet. You've been able to do this and you know, in the future, when and if you want to have children, presumably your fertility would be there if you wanted it to be. Oh, yeah, for sure. And and there have been a number of women who've reached out who've had PCOS or endometriosis, and that's resolved on the carnivore diet. And so, endometriosis, is that's a, that's a really hard thing for people. And PCOS and endometriosis are connected with insulin resistance. So I think it's pretty clear that in, in women for whom dysmenorrhea or irregular periods are related to insulin resistance, going carnivore will fix that or going low carb. There are many ways to fix that. And I think that on the flip side, for some women, their amenorrhea or menstrual irregularities are not necessarily related to insulin resistance. And in that case, it probably requires a little more specific investigation to see what's going on there. But it's an interesting thing. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll what is, more yeah. when we, well, well, the more people that do this. Yeah. So what is your dad eating these days? What's Jordan eating? He's doing meat. Is he doing liver occasionally? Yeah, he really likes liver. Okay. He's on the liver train. So he's eating a lot of liver, um, like a lot, at least a pound a week, at least. So he's eating a lot. Um, he eats way more than I do, but he's also six foot two. Mm-hmm. Um, he eats a lot of fat. So his is same high fat diet, except that he also adds liver, um, beef. He doesn't like lamb. So only beef and salt. Okay. Beef, salt, liver, fat. Yeah. And he's doing a lot better too, right? Well, like autoimmune symptom wise, yes. Anxiety wise, that's been more difficult. It's hard to say because the last four months have been absolutely brutal. They've been total hell for me and they've been much harder on him because it was his wife who got diagnosed. Right, right. So it's hard to say how his anxiety levels have been just because of how high stress the situation's been. Sure. Um, his weight is stable. He actually started going to, he started lift weightlifting recently to tr- try and deal with the stress. Um, and he's gained 10 pounds in the last couple of months, which That's, I think, I think his muscle, muscle um, it's gotta be look. Yeah. He doesn't look any different. Um, yeah. So autoimmune symptom wise, like good, no mm-hmm. problems. Uh, and he had a number of problems. He had like, not like me, but he had other than weight, he had, um, GERD, which was kind of intense. He had some psoriasis, um, and he had, you know, floaters in his eyes, uveitis, uh, gum disease, all that's still gone. The anxiety, that's a different story. Um, right. hard to tell with stress levels. 
So let's just emphasize that for people. He had gastroesophageal reflux disease that got better, which is, I mean, millions of people, the number one selling pharmaceutical in the world are proton pump inhibitors, which abolish the acidic environment of the stomach. They do not stop reflux. They abolish the acidic environment of the stomach and cause more food allergy because we can't digest our food. So to have gastroesophageal reflux disease go away with diet is groundbreaking and Western medicine needs to wake up. He had psoriasis. He had, so he had a skin issue, which went away, which again, argues against criticisms of a carnivore diet that the benefits are all due to weight loss because, or caloric restriction, because that is clearly an autoimmune thing that went away. And then he had improvements in, in many other fields as well, which is, they're all striking. And I just, I can't emphasize this enough. Any one of those things, if Western medicine would wake up and accept it, would be a paradigm shift. It would be tectonic. If if all of the gastroenterologists of the world woke up to the fact that you can potentially fix gastroesophageal reflux disease with food, that would completely shift the way we do medicine in this country. And a multi-billion dollar drug would become useless because people would actually be correcting the root cause. So, but we are looking at, and then if all the dermatologists of the world woke up to the fact that you could fix eczema like I had or psoriasis or your skin rashes with diet, it would completely shift the world. And so when we add all those up, we are left with a mountainous potential for this way of eating to completely shift the way we do medicine in this country and the world, which is why I get so excited about it and why I am so animated. Yeah, no, no, it's huge. I've just been like, I had my mind blown so many times <laughs> from 2015 to now that I don't know what happened. Like at the very beginning, when I first found out food had something to, like something to do with my health issues, I could hardly, like, I didn't so stop taking the subway. I was so mind blown that every time I went on the subway and there were like people who had a whole bunch of extra weight, they were like sleeping. I was like, oh my God, they don't even know. And they're like missing parts of their life because of what they had for breakfast or like maybe they had a donut for a snack because they needed an up and now they're falling asleep on the subway. And so I stopped taking the subway. Like that's how like shocked I was. I was literally walking around the streets with like my mouth open being like these poor people everywhere, not knowing why they're suffering, thinking they just need to walk more. Um, or that uh, it's about exercising more, you know, that's yeah. like, like, you're not exercising enough. I loved on Joe Rogan. You got into like a little bit of an argument with Joe about exercise. And I was like, it's just funny, you know, like, it's not like, yes, people should move. Yes, there are people, many of us are not as motivated as we could be with exercise, but exercise is not going to fix autoimmune disease. No, no. And now that I'm healthy too, I'm walking like, and I had a, um, a revision surgery on my ankle. So now I can like walk properly, but, um, I've been walking, like I want to move, but I didn't want to move when I was half dead or three quarters dead. I needed to fix like the dying part before exactly. I to, like get up and jump around. I agree with you there. I think that the first step for people is food and uh, abolishing, ameliorating inflammation, and then they will have more desire to move. My father's a yeah. physician. I haven't really spoken about my family much ever, but my father's a physician. He was overweight for a long amount of time. I'm still trying to get him to be more keto or low carb or carnivore. He's not there yet. But when he lost a bunch of weight, he just said, I feel light. And it was easier for him to move. And I think that it's, it's great to tell people you need to exercise more. But I think we I think you have a fantastic point that you made on that episode of Rogan, 
that if people don't want to exercise because they're just exhausted and inflamed, then figure out why they're exhausted and inflamed. And once you fix that, they will have a natural desire. It will arise. Humans want to move and they're like, oh, I feel light. Even just they'll want to walk again. I think that is the first step for people. It's not just like crushing yourself in the gym. Yeah. And I tried like part of the reason I wasn't letting Joe get away with that was because I went to the gym for a really long time trying to like push, especially trying to lose. When I went to university, I gained some weight. So I was trying to lose the weight by going to the gym. And I like went to the gym religiously and it made absolutely no difference. If anything, it made me, it's possible it made me feel worse. Exactly. And it's not like I was lazy. I was, I'm not a lazy person. It was like, and, and now I go to the gym, I walk, like I walk for fun. I never used to do that. Although it didn't help having an ankle replacement and a hip replacement. Yeah. That makes it but hard. even now, so yeah. Yeah. So where do you think this is all going? I mean, what's your perspective on how we move this forward? How do we reach more people? How, how can we, where's this all, where's this going to end up? Because clearly we've stumbled upon something pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think it'll just spread. I don't even think it has to be pushed. As soon as one person switches to it, they tell, you know, for the yeah. first like, two years they're in shock right. and they tell like, you know, 3000 people about it and it, and it spreads really quickly and it's so effective that it spreads. It's not going away. We're um, doing it and it gives yeah. such dramatic results so quickly that it's really attractive for people. Um, and then there are people like us who are trying to spread it. I'm writing a book too. Oh, which, cool. You know, I didn't know that. I can, like sit down, get myself. I've been writing it for like a long time because at the beginning it was about my autoimmune disorder. And then obviously it's transformed into what fixed that. Uh-huh. Um, so hopefully more and more people will just talk about it. But it, I think it'll hit mainstream eventually. I give it like 30 years or something. It'll take a while. You think? Oh yeah, no, it's too, it's too effective. Like you can't ignore something like this for that long, but it'll take a while. Like I think 30 years and I think so. That's, that's my guess anyway. I'm hoping more like three, but we'll see. Three? Oh my God. I don't have that much faith in the medical community. (laughs) Well, I I guess literally like, I think the top, like the old doctors literally have to pass away and new ones have to come in. I don't think you can change your mind that dramatically um, after a certain point. Like I tried to talk to my rheumatologist about it and literally I couldn't like, there was no way that he was going to believe that. It's like, there's no way after being stuck in one school of thought for that many years, I don't think he could change his mind. The human brain is a fascinating thing and it's not always incredibly flexible. <laughs> we no. can stuck in our ways. We no, unfortunately. So maybe, yeah. hopefully it's stuff like what you and I are doing that will influence medical students of this generation. And yeah. it's starting to happen. I mean, I'm good friends with a physician assistant student named Dylan, who has been working with me and medical students will reach out to me from time to time. There are more and more physicians yeah. reaching out to me we're starting to figure it out. And I think that that, that will be the beginning of it. Yeah. And I wonder, I wonder whether it's going to come top down from physicians or it's going to come sort of bottom up from patients. And so many patients are going to find benefit that their doctors are not going to be able to ignore it. But I'll tell you what, in the clients and patients that I work with, when they take this to their doctors, even when they say they're feeling good, 
their doctors just kind of throw up their hands and go, cool, I guess you feel good. But they don't always have the curiosity to like dig into it. Like I wish it would have drives me crazy. I'm like, your patient just got better from rheumatoid arthritis and you're not yeah. even curious what happened. They're like, well, strange things happen. Yeah, and yeah. That's and they go on with their life as if nothing happened. And you're like, wow. <laughs> You just saw a supernova happen and it didn't even phase you. Like, what is wrong with people? Anyway. All right. So where can people, yeah. Where, I know, can, I know. where can people find you? Where can they learn more about your stuff? I know you've got a blog and a number of social media spots. Yeah. So I have a website, michaelapeterson.com. The blogs don't eat that. Um, I have YouTube channel, Michaela Peterson. And Instagram, which is also Michaela Peterson. Um, and Twitter. That's Michaela Alexis. Peterson okay. is too long for Twitter. <laughs> All right. So the, the, I have two questions for you just to close up here. The first one is more of a statement followed by a question. So I'm excited to see your steak dance. And if you do a steak dance with your dad. Oh, there's uh, no way. Why not? There's no way. He's not a steak dance person. He's I'm just telling dancer. you now, there's no way. Okay. I'll see what I can do, but there's no way he would He's do that. He's not a steak dance person. Do you think it's just that people are not used to dancing? Does your dad ever dance? He doesn't dance. He seems like he would have some dancing in him. He has, yeah, we danced. We went to New York and he danced. We'll see. I think he has to get out of stress mode first. Give me a couple months. All right, we'll work on a steak dance for dad. Because yeah. Jordan Peterson's steak dance would be, that's bigger than, bigger than anything. Okay. So the last question that I ask all people that have on this podcast is what is the most radical thing you've done in the last month? I know you've had a lot of stress with your mom, but what is the coolest, most radical thing that you've done recently that people may not know about you? Um, they probably know about it. Honestly, I'm really into this fasting thing. Mm -hmm. So I did, um, I did a 99 hour fast in the last month and you didn't want to go to a hundred. I was getting forced out for bourbon, I do drink. I do drink bourbon. That doesn't seem to flare any of my autoimmune symptoms. I think because it's distilled. Anyway, I was being forced out for bourbon, and I was like, if I break my fast with alcohol, I might die. I don't know what will happen, but it's <laughs> not going to be good. I was, so I was like forced, social obligations. Plus, I was aiming for 96, so technically 99 was an improvement. Cool. Anyway, I think the most radical thing I've done in the last month was the 99 hour fast. It was really, it was really cool that like hunger eventually just kind of disappeared. I didn't lose, you know, my, like my mind was clear. There were no negatives really. By the time I was eating, I wasn't even hungry. It was really how, how did you feel when you ate again? Um, the first bite was really good. It's your hunger goes away so dramatically at that point that it wasn't even as delicious as I was hoping. The first bite was really good, but I wasn't really that hungry. So I didn't eat very much for my first meal. Um, it was just much less dramatic than it sounds. So I think that was the coolest thing I've done recently. But fasting is super powerful. And I think that hand in hand fasting and a carnivore diet can really turn the tide of illness in, in, yeah. in the world. I mean, those two interventions would be so powerful together, especially with regard to the leptin stuff we were talking about earlier. Yeah, yeah. But just to clarify for people as we close up, how much salt do you think you're eating? Do you track your electrolytes? I know they're going to ask, and then we'll let you go. Uh, when I'm fasting, I eat um, about 6,000 milligrams of sodium, 
Um, six thousand milligrams of sodium, and it'll be. That would probably be twelve hundred milligrams of potassium and. Much less magnesium, but yeah, less magnesium. Probably thirty six hundred or three hundred and sixty yeah. milligrams of magnesium because you're using the Element. I'm using the Element ones, yeah. Which is which is a thousand milligrams of sodium, not sodium chloride, right? It's a thousand milligrams of sodium. I think it actually. I'm kind of surprised I don't have any lying around. Um, oh yeah, here's one. <laughs> <laughs> sodium chloride. Oh, it's a thousand milligrams of sodium chloride. Yeah, a thousand milligrams sodium chloride, two hundred milligrams potassium chloride, and sixty milligrams magnesium malate. Uh-huh. And so I usually have six of these a day, maybe a little bit more. Um, and then if I'm not fasting, maybe two or three of those, um, and a whole bunch of real salt. I like real salt the best. Redmond, Redmond real salt. Redmond real salt. Yeah. Um, How much real salt do you think you're eating in a day? probably a tablespoon. I don't eat very much. A tablespoon? So that's like 10 to 15 grams (laughs) or a teaspoon. A teaspoon is like five grams. I think it's probably more than a teaspoon. For most people it is. Um, but I don't know if it's quite a tablespoon and, and generally I'm, I'm eating once or twice. I try Mm -hmm. to eat it three times a day and I have not been feeling great and I know it's from overeating so I'm not gonna whatever I'll just fast and won't try and gain any weight because it doesn't seem to be working anyway awesome awesome Michaela it's such a pleasure thank you so much for hanging out yeah this was fun yeah we'll catch up later when I do more blood work yes we will do that we'll have you back on and I am eagerly anticipating your steak dance (laughs) okay all right all right you guys that was a fun one I really enjoyed that conversation with Michaela she's clearly a very intelligent, well-spoken, eloquent woman who is on a mission because she has found so many improvements in her health with these dietary changes. And it will come as no surprise to regular listeners of this podcast to hear that she and I see eye to eye on many things. And it's so cool to hear that both she and her dad, Jordan Peterson, are both finding benefits to organ meats. I think that's a big part of it. I think that we can't just be eating the muscle meat of these animals. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me evolutionarily. So I hope you enjoyed that one. Again, as always, if you enjoy this podcast, please leave me a review on iTunes. It's doing great. It's got over 250 reviews. We're a five-star podcast and share it with your friends and family. I'm excited that it's growing and that we can reach more people and help people in so many good ways. I've been writing my book like crazy recently. It's coming out in January. We're working on a cookbook with the Strong Sisters. Check them out. And uh, I have a new website, which is carnivoremd.com. You can connect with me through there if you'd like. I also have a Patreon, as you know. I have a YouTube. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter. I'm everywhere. Find me everywhere, carnivoremd.com. And uh, again, if you like this podcast, please leave me a review. If you want to support my work on Patreon, you're free to do that. And I hope you guys have a great week. And please also send me your steak dances because look, White Oak Pastures has given somebody a hundred bucks of free, amazing stuff just for dancing. So do it. Send me your steak dances on Instagram. Tag me, tag them, hashtag it steak dance. And I will see you guys in the next episode.